I wonder this morning, when was the last time you sat down and wrote someone a letter? Not an email, not a post-it note, but a real live letter. Well, for better or for worse, letters have become a rather archaic artifact of our past. But for the vast majority of human history, letters were the primary means of substantive communication. In 1876, an English professor named Willis Westlake wrote a book called How to Write Letters, a 19th century guide to the lost art of epistolary etiquette. And in it, he says that a letter should be regarded not merely as a medium for communication of intelligence, but also as a work of art. He gives lots of advice in this book. One thing he says is, both paper and envelope should be a fine quality. It conduces to fine penmanship and perhaps inspires the writer with fine thoughts. Coarse paper, coarse language, coarse thoughts. All coarse things seem to be associated. And then he says to never write a letter with red ink. Indeed, it is in better taste to discard all fancy inks and use simple black. It is the most durable color, and one never tires of it. He concludes his book with a few notes on the value of letter writing. He says, There is no other kind of writing that possesses for us such a living human interest as letters. For there is no other that comes so near to the private lives, to the business and bosoms, of the writers, laying bare, as it were, their inmost hearts for our inspection, showing us how they thought, felt, suffered, and triumphed. Well, this certainly is true of 2 Corinthians, as it is without a doubt the most personal and emotional letter Paul wrote. Nowhere else is his heart so torn and exposed as in this letter. I started preaching through it five years ago. And today we finish. So I invite you there. Invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And just to briefly summarize the context, the relationship with Paul and the Corinthian church, which he had started, was pretty bad. He had promised to visit, but didn't show up when he said he would. So they thought he was shallow and didn't keep his word. False teachers had come into the church, causing many to think that Paul was not even a legitimate apostle. So among other things in this letter, Paul explained why he was delayed in visiting them. He talks about great joy over their repentance. He calls them to collect money for needy Christians in the Jerusalem church. He spent a lot of time talking about these so-called super-apostles and explaining why he wasn't at all inferior to these guys. He defended his legitimacy as an apostle because Paul knew that to reject him was to reject the message of the gospel that he preached. And that is what he feared the most. Their rejection of his message was a far greater concern to him than any rejection of him. So coming then to the conclusion of this letter, we see a really strong warning 
in 12.19 through 13.4. And then we see three things that Paul desires for the Corinthians. Assurance, growth, and fellowship. Let's first look at the warning. Beginning chapter 12, verse 19. Paul writes, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul talks here about visiting the Corinthians again for the third time. We know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul started the church in Corinth. He visited them again, but it was a really bad, painful, difficult visit. It was short. It did not go well. And Paul thought that it was probably better to just stay away for a while. He then wrote what is called the severe letter. It's a letter that we do not have, but, but we can assume that it was successful in that along with the personal intervention of Titus and the anticipated positive reception of this letter, Paul apparently had enough confidence to go ahead and visit them a third time. But he admits here that he's a bit afraid. He's afraid that when he shows up, he will find the same sorts of sins that were there before. These sins listed of quarreling and Jealousy and anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. These sorts of things are intolerable in the church of Jesus Christ because we were bought for Him, not for ourselves. We were bought to live for each other, not to live for ourselves. Paul's also afraid that he'll find a lack of repentance over the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that many had practiced, all of which must never be found in the Christian church. Even though Paul had praised the Corinthians in chapter 7 for their godly repentance, he still has qualms about whether they have completely submitted to Christ and forsaken their sin. And he's not talking here about lapses, but characteristics. If I come, he says, and find that these things are still there, it will be proof that they are not just isolated incidences, 
but are part of your character. Something that you are putting up with and tolerating in your life. Paul makes it very clear in verse 2 that the warnings he gave on his second visit were very much still alive. And if there was still no repentance when he showed up on the third visit, it would not be pretty. Paul references in verse 1 the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19.15 of two or three witnesses. And the assumption behind that law is that it's better for someone who is guilty to go unpunished because of a lack of witnesses than to harm the innocent person's reputation with a reckless charge that isn't true. So as far as witnesses, Paul could probably call several in the church as well as Timothy and Titus. There are three other places this rule is stated in the New Testament. And as one commentator explains, it marks the point at which a private dispute becomes a matter for public arbitration. From now on, a strict rule of evidence will apply. Paul is saying that my next visit will be the occasion for our dispute or your unrepentant sin to be addressed publicly. So what we see here is a call for corrective church discipline according to the biblical principles described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Corinthians had misjudged Paul's gentleness as weakness, preferring the pushiness of the false teachers. And Paul responds by saying that if it's power you want to see as the absolute criteria of genuine apostleship, you may be getting more than you bargained for. You see, the Corinthians did not see power in the same way that Paul did. They understood it as something exerted by assertive, domineering, forceful personalities who boisterously and tyrannically wield their authority. But Paul sees power perfected in weakness as displayed in Jesus Christ. And as he explains here in verses 3 and 4, Christ's weakness, namely his death, is the platform for God's power displayed in his resurrection from the dead. So as we think about this warning, it's a good reminder to us that even though corrective church discipline is neither popular nor enjoyable, It is biblical. And it's something that we must continue to practice as a church. We must continue to practice it for the good of the individual disciplined, for the good of other individuals who need to be protected and instructed, for the good of the world around us that needs to be evangelized, for the good of the church that needs to be purified, and ultimately for God that he may be glorified. And we're reminded here that corrective discipline is accompanied by great grief. See that there in verse 21 of chapter 12? Paul is mourning over the the possibility of having to exercise this form of discipline. We also see here that it's the last resort. Warning after warning after warning was issued by Paul. In verse 10, 
he's telling them again, I'm writing this letter so that we won't have to reach this point. And we also see that corrective discipline is always, the goal of it is always that of restoration. In verse 19, he talks about, 12:19, he talks about how everything he's doing is for their, for their upbuilding. And then we see also in verse 10 of chapter 13, his goal in all of this is to build up, not to tear down. So after issuing his warning, Paul turns in the remaining verses to give several commands, which together reveal what he wants for the Corinthian church. And, and I'm, I'm categorizing this, this in three. Assurance, growth, and fellowship. And each of these should characterize our lives, both individually and as a church. We must be marked by assurance, verses 5 and 6, growth, 7 through 10, and fellowship, verses 11 through 14. Note with me verse 5. Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether, or, whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Yourselves is in the, in the emphatic position in the Greek there in verse 5. It says, yourselves test. The Corinthians were really good at examining others. You know, kind of like us, right? I mean, we are really, really, really good at putting other people to the test. They had been putting Paul to the test. And he says, guys, you've been examining me. You need to test yourselves. Examine yourselves to confirm whether or not you are in the faith, which is the Christian faith. He reminds them that as true believers, Christ is in them, unless they really aren't in Christ, unless they fail the test. The point of verse 6 is that if they conclude that they are true believers, then there must be some merit to Paul's claim of being a legitimate apostle. Because after all, he was the one who brought the gospel message to them. As one commentator explained, they should come to recognize that just as they belong to Christ, so does Paul. The verdict about themselves will be the verdict about him. Some would say that it's not really possible to have assurance that you are in the faith. You can't really fully know, after all, whether or not you're saved. But Paul would not have called the Corinthians to something that they could not be sure of. The whole point of examining something is because it is possible to know whether or not it passes the test. So yes, you can know with full assurance whether or not you're in the faith. Some may also say that it really isn't that important to have assurance. Why does it matter? It doesn't really interest me. Why, why bother going through that? Well, it is important. 
In fact, it's of unspeakable significance because your soul will never die. And you will only experience life in Christ if he's in you. And so whether you profess faith in Christ this morning or not, you must examine yourself before that great unknown hour when your life will end. Because after you die, you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God will then examine you. And your verdict will be based on whether or not you're in the Christian faith. Don't you want to be sure before you're judged by God and it's too late? Well, if we can be sure, and finding out is really important, how can we know? What should our examination, or what should this test look like? Well, Paul doesn't give us here a list of questions to ask. But all through the New Testament, we see a picture of what a true Christian looks like. And there's actually another letter, 1 John, which was specifically written for those who want to examine themselves so that you may know that you have eternal life, John says. So I encourage you to read 1 John later today or sometime this week. It contains three tests that I will only mention here briefly. The first test in 1 John is theological. Do you believe who Jesus is? Jesus is Lord and Savior, fully God, fully man. Eternal life in Christ can come only through faith in Jesus because He is the Christ, Messiah come in the flesh who died to pay the penalty for our sins. And all sinners who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ's perfect and complete sacrifice become united to Christ, in Christ, in Christ in you. So, so in our self-examination, this has got to be the starting point because it's the only way that it's possible to enter into the faith is through the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified and risen for sin. So I wonder this morning, have you come to see yourself as a sinner who deserves God's wrath? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone as your Savior and as your Lord? If not, I I encourage you to do so today. And if you have any questions about Jesus and who He is and what it means to be in the faith, please talk with us. We would love to be of help to you in any way that we can. And, And in fact, this little book called Who is Jesus? It's red. It's all about Jesus. If you would like to read more and think more about who Christ is, I'll be in the lobby right in front of the doors and I'll happily give you a copy of this book if you would like. It'll be really helpful as you think through this first question of who Jesus is. The second test in 1 John is a moral test. Do you obey God's commands? We do not earn God's favor by how we live. Good works cannot save, but they do provide evidence that we are in the faith. 
As James says, faith without works is dead. Our lives, or how we live, must match our belief in Christ. Paul assumes here, I think, that the Corinthians in whom Christ is present will not continue in the lifestyle of disobedience characterized at the end of chapter 12. Where Christ is, there is a growing life of holiness. To continue in lives of disobedience is to fail the test of Christ's presence. And let's not forget on this point the importance of our hearts. I mean, it's possible, right? It's possible to obey, to do the right thing on the outside, but yet inwardly bristle against God's law because it's keeping you from something that you really, really want to do. God's not fooled by that. He sees the heart. God's people, who Christ possesses, have a delight in God's law because you love the lawgiver and you know that his law is your very life, even in those times when it's hard to obey. The third test John gives us is the social test. Do you love others? John clearly states that if you do not love, you don't know God because God is love. If Christ is in us, then we will demonstrate love to our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. So so think for a moment of who you live with. might be a roommate, perhaps a sibling, spouse, parents, your children. Would those who know you best and observe you the most be able to point to specific ways in which you show genuine love to them? Do they see you joyfully showing love to your fellow church members, even though it may not be easy or convenient? These three tests all come together in 1 John 5, 1 and 2, where John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's a theological test. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. There's the social test. By this we know that we love the children of God, even when we love God and obey his commands. There's the moral test. So none of these three tests can stand alone. If you don't pass the theology, the moral, and the social test, then you fail. It's not one out of three or two out of three to pass. It's all or nothing. But if you love Jesus, if you love his commands, and you love his people, you can have assurance that you are in the faith, that Christ is in you. This means, and I hope it's clear, that your assurance should not come from the fact that you prayed a prayer when you were young or made a profession of faith at some point in the past. Your assurance should not come from the fact that you're a member of a church or that you regularly attend church. Paul does not assume here that every member of the Corinthian church is a true Christian. Our assurance must come from faith in the objective work of Christ and the transformed life 
that inevitably follows. So if perhaps you think you fail the test after examining yourself and, and you're really not confident that you are in the faith, then call out to Christ in repentant faith. John writes in chapter 1 that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And maybe after thinking through these tests, you're just really not sure. And you're struggling with doubts about this or that. I would just encourage you to talk to somebody who can help you see more clearly on these matters. And I think on this point, it's important to point out that this crucial process of personal examination, it should always lead us to Christ. Self-examination should always lead us to Christ. There is a danger, I think, perhaps more for some than others, for our self-examination to cross a line and turn into really just an unhealthy introspection that always leads to despair. So in the testing and examining yourself, particularly if you're prone to introspection, heed these words of J.C. Ryle, who said, cultivate the habit of fixing your eye more simply on Jesus Christ and try to know more of the fullness there laid up in him for every one of his believing people. Do not always be pouring down over the imperfections of your own heart and dissecting your own besetting sins. Look up. Look up. Look more to your risen head in heaven and try to realize more than you do that the Lord Jesus not only died for you, but that he also rose again and that he is ever living at God's right hand as your priest, your advocate, and your almighty friend. And as McShane sums up so well, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. So first, we must be marked by assurance. Second, we must be marked by growth. Picking things back up in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Even though the Corinthians had deeply disappointed and hurt Paul, he's praying here for their spiritual growth. His prayer that they may not do wrong was not a prayer for sinless perfection, but that the Corinthians would be preserved and restrained from sin. He was praying for their recovery. And Paul, Paul cared more that they would do right than that they would perceive him to have passed the test. Paul cared more for the people he served than even his own reputation. The Corinthians had done a whole lot of wrong. It 
spelled out all throughout this letter. They desperately needed to grow in Christ, and he was praying that they would. Verse 8 shows us Paul's integrity. He couldn't alter his public image just to please them. He could not act against the truth. Paul prays in verse 9 for their restoration. And that is the same Greek word used in Mark 1.19 of James and John mending their nets. So, so the Corinthians were in a sense like a fishing net that had developed a bunch of holes and gotten all tangled up. They needed to be repaired, straightened out, and put into order. Paul's heart desire for his critics, critics in Corinth was their restoration, even at his apparent expense. If they are strong, due to their repentance and embrace of Paul's authority, then he will appear weak, because he will not have to enforce his authority with powerful acts. And in verse 10, we see Paul's humility and restraint. If the letter does his proper work, there will be repentance and obedience to the gospel in Corinth, and Paul will not be forced to display his stern power of discipline. Growth. Growth. We should ask ourselves this morning, am I growing? Are you growing? And let's remember here that growth is not instantaneous. It's incremental. Progress is what matters. So, so are you doing less wrong this year than last year? Less wrong than three, five, ten, fifteen years ago? Is your net less of a mess today than it used to be? Are there fewer holes and tangles? Is the mending process of sanctification a visible, ongoing reality in your life? At times, growth will certainly be faster and more evident than others. But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, you will be growing more and more into his image. I love the words of John Newton, who before he was in Christ was a slave trader. He says this, said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And just as being a member of a church greatly helps with our assurance, it also significantly helps with our growth because growth is something that we must do as a church together. We need the body of Christ. We need each other to help us grow. So pray for the growth of your fellow church members. Be present in the life of our church beyond just the Sunday morning gathering so you can know others better and consider tangible ways in which you can be used by the Lord to help other people grow. And in our corporate task of discipleship, let's always remember the need for patience and understanding. People typically don't change and grow as fast as we would like, right? You and I don't grow as fast 
is other people would like. So we need patience and understanding. But if Christ is in them, there will be growth. There will be incremental progress. So let's pray. Strive to understand and encourage. Lovingly confront and warn when you should. And trust God to accomplish His work in His time. We must be marked by assurance, growth, and third, by fellowship. Verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The five commands in verse 11 give us a pretty good picture of Christian fellowship. Rejoice. You pass the test. Christ is in you. You're in the faith. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. That's the same thing Paul prays for in verse 9. And no doubt there were relationships that needed mending, which would call for for forbearance and love. Comfort one another. Paul is aware of the depth of the hurt among those who were in the right and the wrong. The situation then and now in Corinth demanded mutual tenderness and comfort. Agree with one another. This doesn't mean they needed to agree on every single thing. But they need to be intent on the same purpose. They needed to be of one mind. Think the same thoughts as they submit their minds and hearts to God's word as the sole authority of life and practice. Even though we may differ on this or that interpretation, application, and we do, our minds are the mind of Jesus. We share that. And so, we're able then to live in peace. And as the Corinthians do these things, Paul says they will find that the love of God and peace will be with them. God imparts his qualities to his children as they actively do his will. Now, I'm really, really thankful that one does not have to look very hard to see all five of these qualities alive and active in the life of our church. But let's always remember that the existence of true Christian fellowship and unity does not just happen. It requires intentional and constant effort. Restoration is work. Comfort is work. Agreement is work. Peace is work. And even rejoicing requires thought and effort. Christian socializing, essentially just enjoying the company of those who are a lot like you, or those who really, really, really like you, like that's natural. And it's really, really pretty easy. It's just not something you're going to find in the New Testament. What we see here 
and all throughout the New Testament, is operating with my fellow Christians in such a way that everything that I do is designed to strengthen them spiritually. That is true Christian fellowship. And it provides a sense of the love and peace of God which would otherwise not be experienced. A tangible expression of this fellowship would have been the greeting of a holy kiss. Now, there, there's a lot of really, really interesting things written about this. And some would even say that we ought to practice it. I suspect that if we as elders announced that we are going to put this into practice every Sunday morning at the door, some of you might object. So don't worry, right? We're not going to do that. But probably what's most significant to us about this is the spirit of this command. And the spirit of this command is that Christians should express their mutual love in a tangible way, sanctioned by the age and community in which they live, which for us is perhaps most commonly a smile, a handshake, and perhaps even a hug. Paul says in verse 13 that all the saints greet you, and he's 200 miles north in Greece, and the Corinthians are 200 miles away in southern Greece. And Paul is saying, hey, the, the Christians up here say hi. They greet you. They're aware of you and they care about you because they share in the same body. They share in Christ. And Paul then ends his letter with a very common benediction or blessing. It's the last line in our church covenant. And we use it often at the close of our corporate worship gatherings together. And there is so much in verse 14. It really does deserve its own sermon. And in fact, Joel Beakey, who's a pastor and author some of you may have heard of, he deemed verse 14 worthy of six sermons. This is one of the explicit references in the New Testament to the Trinity as all three persons of the Godhead are referenced together here. And some try to explain the tradition, how, how Paul switches the traditional order and put Jesus, the Son, before the Father. Some try to suggest that, um, that why Paul's doing that or that there's some kind of reasoning behind his switching the order. But, but I'm not really sure that Paul's trying to make a point here. He just knows that the only way for the Corinthians to be marked by the growth and fellowship he desires for them is for them to be affected by the grace, love, and fellowship experienced and modeled in our triune God. The grace shown by Christ condemns our self-righteousness in our self-centeredness. The love of God demonstrated by Christ removes our jealousy and our division. And the fellowship the Holy Spirit creates among us renders ridiculous the petty rivalries of minds focused on self. Paul wanted their bonds to be rooted in Christian fellowship, which is the fruit of the gospel, 
brought about by the Holy Spirit. The truth about our triune God is the means for our growth and the motivation for our fellowship and the example of what it should look like. And as we grow and relate to each other in Christian fellowship, the truth about our God is seen through the window of a congregation's life. Think of it. Eden Baptist Church, we are a display of the glory of our triune God. How do you think the Corinthian church responded to Paul's strong warning here? Well, there's not a third Corinthians which tells that story. So so we cannot be entirely sure. But commentators say it seems likely that they responded positively. And he didn't have to be severe in exercising his authority. During his third visit, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. He, He wrote Romans from Corinth during this third visit. And it's unlikely that he would have said in chapter 15 that he was planning to travel to Spain if the Corinthian situation was still unresolved. Paul also mentions in Romans 15 that the Corinthians collected their share of the funds that Paul was gathering for the saints in Jerusalem. And that would certainly be an indication that they had responded well. But for us today, what matters is how will we respond. We may not be a church with as many blatantly obvious sin issues as the Corinthians. But we too must be marked by assurance, a confidence that we are in the faith. We must be marked by growth, continuing more and more to be conformed in the image of Christ. And we must be a church that's marked by fellowship, relating to each other and growing together in a way that models the triune God who we worship. Father, we thank you for this ancient letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We thank you so much for all that it says and all that it relates to us. Father, I pray this morning in light of this closing chapter of this letter, I pray for all who are in the faith, all of us here who are in the faith, may your spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are your children. Thank you, Father, that we can know, that we can have assurance that Christ is in us. And for any here this morning who either think or have thought that they're in the faith, but in reality they're not, Father, please show them that. Please remove any deception that may be there and grant the genuine gift of faith and repentance. Father, I pray that you would cause anyone here who is not in the faith to see the all-sufficient, saving grace of Christ. Help them to see the vastness of 
of your love and the beauty of the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. Grant them, Father, the desire for the relationship with you and with others that you created for them. Grant them new life. And Father, may we be a church that is growing. And may the ways that we relate to each other in Christian fellowship continue more and more to reflect the grace of Christ, your love, and the fellowship that comes through your Spirit. We ask this all through Christ. Amen.